Well, on June 23rd of 2018, 12 soccer players and their young coach went into a cave after practice in Thailand. They wanted to do some exploring for the afternoon. Torrential rain came. Ten days later, they were found. They were found alive in the cave. It was 18 days before the last boy was rescued, really against all odds. I want you to think about how long 18 days is. 18 days ago from right now was the day before Thanksgiving. That's how long those boys were trapped in that cave. It was 10 days before they were found. 10 days ago was December 1st, a week ago last Thursday. 10 days of not knowing if they were going to be found that day or on the 11th day or the 12th day or ever. And then eight more days after being found before being rescued. If you're like me and you only followed that story sporadically four years ago, I wondered why it took them over a week to get those boys out once they'd been found. It's like slap a scuba tank on their back and lead them out one at a time. What's the big deal? But that Amazon movie made it clear that navigating the dive through that cave for five grueling hours proved nearly impossible for the most skilled divers in the world. One Navy SEAL lost his life in the attempt. And now, the only way those 13 lives were going to be saved was to have them do what really was impossible. It's why those who were most informed in the middle of that ordeal believed that there would be no survivors even after the boys had been located in the cave. Now, what was hidden from reporters at the time was hidden from the boys' families and certainly from the world is that throughout those days of anxiety, they, the only option for rescue that they came up with was that they would anesthetize the boys and bring them out that way. That's why that one diver, if you heard him say it during the trailer, said, what you're suggesting is insane, it's unethical, and it's illegal. And yet it became their only option. It literally was their only hope. And that's how they got the boys out. One by one, dragging out a drugged body through the tightest cave chambers you can imagine for over five hours. One by one, until all 13 of those lives were saved. It's an amazing movie, amazing story. Gail had to close her eyes through a lot of it because it is just intense. I'm telling you. Well, we're continuing our Christmas series today called Search and Rescue. I mean, Christmas itself was a search and rescue mission because God sent Jesus into the world to what? The Bible tells us to seek and to save the lost. And the amazing thing is that Jesus is still doing that today. I mean, during this series, we're thinking about search and rescue the whole thing from that May Day call that first came out in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned against God to the distress signals that we send out pretty much every day because our lives are often a mess. Jesus is still searching. Jesus is still rescuing. Truth is, we don't often think about Christmas as search and rescue. Our pictures of that first nativity are typically pretty benign. We like to envision the baby Jesus snuggled up in swaddling clothes, sleeping soundly in the manger, and Mary is by his side looking remarkably refreshed and beautiful despite hours of labor. Joseph is there too, of course. Usually there's shepherds, there's wise men, there's a few curious animals, there's that brilliant star in the sky, and it all just looks so perfect. It looks so serene, so safe. 
But I'm not sure that it really looked that way at all. After an 85-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, walking or riding on a donkey, the Bible doesn't, doesn't say for sure, and then following that, childbirth in a barn, I just don't think Mary and Joseph were quite as relaxed as they look in most Christmas cards and nativity scenes. I mean, you talk about a chaotic birth. It's hard to imagine a more challenging arrival for a baby or for his mother. And then you kind of add to that the political climate at the time. The only reason Mary and Joseph wound up in Bethlehem, aside from the fact that it was God's will, is because Caesar Augustus, the ruler of Rome, ordered them to go there to pay their taxes that they could hardly afford. The Jews in the first century found themselves ruled by pagans, helpless to throw off the shackles that bound them, unable to declare their independence from Rome. And still further, Jesus' birth brought a cold shudder, just fear to the powers of hell. The Son of God had arrived on the scene. Nothing would ever be the same. Satan was about to unleash 33 years of opposition against the only real threat to his influence that had ever walked the earth. We said last week that Jesus' arrival was not a soft landing. Rather, it was a divine invasion. It was not a calm nativity. It was a harrowing search and rescue mission. In fact, it would not be long before King Herod would do some searching of his own, trying to have the baby Jesus put to death, forcing Mary and Joseph and the baby to flee all the way to Egypt to save their lives. Christmas chaos is nothing new. If you think your schedule this Christmas is out of control or the expectations that are being put on you are just too high or your pressure is about to boil over, I mean, let's be honest, we have nothing compared to Mary and Joseph and the Christ child. Christmas chaos is as old as Christmas itself. Now, we're going to get to Jesus' arrival in the coming two weeks, but we're going to see this morning that God was working behind the scenes to prepare the world for what was to come. See, when a, when a search and rescue mission begins, facts have to be gathered. A strategy has to be made. Once that mayday signal comes in, the rescuers have to, to come up with a game plan before anyone is deployed to bring back those who are in despair. And God set the game plan into motion today by sending an angel to a priest named Zechariah. Next week, God will send that same angel to a young woman named Mary. Luke tells us that Zechariah was married to Elizabeth, a relative of Mary's. The two of them were quite old. They had no children. They're past childbearing age, and so they've given up the hope of raising a family on their own, of their own. And one day, Zechariah was on duty at the temple in Jerusalem. He had been chosen by Lot to go in and to burn incense. See, throughout the year, most priests would serve in the villages outside of Jerusalem. They would not serve at the temple itself, although certainly some did. But twice a year, the, the priests would all journey to Jerusalem to serve. And the honor of burning incense in the temple was such a big deal that you were only allowed that privilege one time in your life. I read there may have been as many as 18,000 priests in Israel at this time. The reality was many priests would never have the opportunity to burn incense, to have their number drawn, so to speak. And what I'm saying is that this day was in many ways the pinnacle of ministry for, for Zechariah. He had been chosen to burn the incense. 
He just had no idea, even though he had dreamed of this and longed for this, he had no idea how big of a day it was going to turn out to be. So when a, when a priest would burn incense, he would step into an area of the temple behind a veil, behind a curtain, and it was known as the holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place. And the other worshipers would wait outside, and on this particular day, they had a longer wait than usual. This is what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled, and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. This was a prophecy about the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And you're probably wondering, I can see it on your faces, you're wondering, was he a Southern Baptist? Was he an Independent Baptist? Or was he a Free Will Baptist? We know he wasn't an American Baptist. Come on, he's in Israel. But actually, he's not that kind of Baptist. Okay, The Bible says that John the Baptist, when he came on the scene and began his ministry, about 30 years after this prophecy to his dad, he baptized people in the Jordan River. Probably would be more correct to call him John the Baptizer, but the name that stuck, at least in English, is John the Baptist. And, and so this baby that God promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth was going to be a very special baby. All babies are special, sure. But this one was going to prepare the world for the coming Savior. In fact, it says here, it suggests here, and most scholars agree, that John was a Nazarite from birth. That's what Gabriel is telling Zechariah to, to have the Nazarite vow for his son. Samson in the Old Testament, Samuel in the Old Testament were both Nazarites from birth. That means no fermented drink. It means no cutting of the hair, no contact with a dead body. It was all about the, the child, the man, remaining ceremonially pure before God. Now, as you might imagine, Zechariah is blown away by this message. I mean, forget the fact that his son is going to help change the world, right? That's a big deal, of course. But he's blown away that he's going to have a son at all. He and Elizabeth were old. Birthdays have a way of doing that to you. And they were beyond all hope of having children. He's probably thinking, oh my goodness, does Medicare have maternity benefits? He's thinking, am I going to be able to use my Social Security check to pay the pediatrician? I mean, this is crazy. He just can hardly get his brain around the fact that they're going to have a child. He's shocked by the news, and in his astonishment, he did what a lot of us do when we are in the middle of chaos, when we're shocked, when we're surprised, when we're excited. He said something really dumb. He said to the angel of the Lord, how can I be sure you're telling me the truth? Probably shouldn't have said that. I mean, I realize you're from heaven and all, but how do I know this is really going to happen? So Gabriel says, you want to know how you can know? I'm Gabriel. Gabriel. Gabriel means hero of God, by the way. He said, I stand in the presence of God. God sent me to talk to you. God gave me a little latitude here, and I'll tell you how you can know that I'm telling the truth. You're not going to be able to talk until the baby is born. Let me give you nine months to think about that dumb question. It doesn't say all that here, but you get the idea that that's what he's alluding to. For nine months, Zechariah could not talk 
So he could think about how smart it is to question an angel when he tells you what God's up to. Luke says when Zechariah finally came out of the temple, everybody wonders what had been going on in there, why it took him so long. And now he can't speak, and they realize, man, something happened that was really dramatic. Verse 22 says that he used signs to try to help them understand. I mean, they played charades. He got to act out that his wife's expecting. You know, and, and, and they're trying to figure out what on earth he's talking about. It says in Luke 1.24, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Having a child was a defining, wo- defining moment for a woman in ancient Israel. I mean, certainly it's maybe the greatest thing that's ever happened to you if you're a woman. But in a unique way in Israel, it became that which defined you, having a child And Luke wrote his gospel telling us about the coming of Jesus, but John had his ministry to prepare the world for Jesus. Verse 57 of Luke 1, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And eight days later, it it came time to circumcise the baby and give him a name. I'm guessing one of those two procedures was a little more vexing for little John than the other. Circumcision, got a name given to him. And Zechariah is finally able to speak. And the miraculous nature of God just giving him his voice back made everybody wonder, what is this child going to be? What is God up to here? And you think about the fact that God had really been silent in Israel for 400 years. There had not been a prophet sent from God since Malachi rose up to deliver the word of God 400 years before Christ. People were hungry for good news, and good news has finally come. And you got to realize that when John is finally born, Zechariah, he's a preacher who hadn't been allowed to, allowed to talk. Okay, I, I can't imagine And so it's been bottled up in him all this time. So scripture says that he kind of breaks into song here. This is probably more like a declaration than a Broadway musical. Okay, but he, but this is, this is Zechariah's song. He says, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant, David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant that he swore with an oath to our ancestors, Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And so this first part of his song is about Jesus, the one who's been promised, the one who's coming to save us. But then Zechariah looks down at that little baby John in his arms, and he says this in verse 76, And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And to guide us on the path to peace. 
Man, that is quite a job description for a seven-pound little guy in a blue blanket. You will be prophet of the Most High God. You'll prepare the way for the Lord. You will announce forgiveness of sins to all humanity. To those in darkness, you will bring light. To those living in the shadow of death, you will open the gate to the path of peace. See, Luke wrote his gospel to tell people about Jesus. John preached in his ministry to prepare the world for Jesus. And then Jesus, along he came for search and rescue, to seek and to save the lost. I mean, do you realize what Christmas was all about? This is a climactic moment in history. It's like those divers in the cave. Jesus risked everything. He gave up everything so that he could save us from sin and death. God deployed his own son to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. John the Baptist would announce to the world that Jesus was coming to save his people from their sins, from their enemies in Rome, yeah, 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 but from death, from destruction, from the devastation of our own choices. And we mentioned earlier the chaos of this time period where John and Jesus grew up. There was peace in Rome, sure, but only because the Roman army had crushed anybody who opposed them. There was education, and there was communication, and there was transportation unlike the world had ever known before. But that still, millions of people in the world at this time were slaves. Many more lived in poverty. Being a Roman citizen was great, but most people weren't Roman citizens. These were hard times. The people of Israel endured persecution and taxation from Rome, the scope of which we can hardly comprehend. Herod was a puppet king placed in Judea by Caesar in Rome. And he was known for vast building projects and doing a lot of things that are remembered today in that way. But he had jealous fits of rage. He murdered numerous members of his own family to secure his own kingdom. He murdered countless Israelites and innocent babies when he was trying to stop the arrival of Jesus. The Bible says, as Gail read to us a moment ago, Jesus came at the right time, that God sent Jesus at just the right time. But understand, it wasn't easy times. It was hard times. It was dark times. But God set this game plan into motion. Search and rescue had begun. And friends, I was thinking this week how much we need search and rescue today. Just like John and And Jesus, in that time period, entered a very hard time in the world. We're living in desperate and chaotic times right now. There is tension today. There is upheaval today, morally, politically, relationally, and spiritually. If you follow the news this past week, it told about two school districts in Virginia. One, the Loudoun County Public Schools, They had enacted a very controversial transgender bathroom policy. And back in 2021, a teenage boy wearing a skirt entered a girl's bathroom and raped a classmate. The school covered up the rape. The boy was sent off to another school where he proceeded to molest two other female students. And it was discovered this week, this past week, that a teacher's aide back in 2021 had actually walked into the bathroom Saw two pairs of legs out under the stall, turned around and walked out, didn't say a thing to anybody. And when the enraged parents tried to speak up, they were labeled as troublemakers. Well, the school superintendent 
was fired this past week because of the mishandling of the situation and because he lied to cover up the events. In the city of Chesapeake, Virginia, also in the news right now, the local satanic temple has submitted an application to start an after-school satanic club at the local elementary school. Because there's a good news club that shares the gospel after school, they want to include a satanic club as well. Now, the after-school satanic club, they insist that they're not going to teach about the devil. Rather, they help young students learn about benevolence and empathy, critical thinking, problem-solving, creative expression, personal sovereignty, whatever that is, and compassion. And yet, in their temple, there in Virginia, they have a nine-foot-tall bronze statue of Satan with two young children staring up in wonder at him. And you look at that and you say, it looks pretty clear to me what the goal is to inspire children in this way. And friends, I get these are extreme examples in some ways. It's why they made national news. But the reality is stories like this are becoming more and more common. I was driving home Friday night, had the radio on, and the host was talking about a group of intolerant and uninformed people in another state who were opposing drag queen story hour at their public library where a man comes in dressed as a woman and reads stories to kids. We are living in troubled times. We are living in dark times. We need search and rescue now more than ever. And God's game plan from the very beginning was to send Jesus into the world, to push back the darkness, to shine his glorious light, and then to offer us new life in Christ. We need search and rescue now. We need Jesus now. You know, I've done some reading of author Anne Lamott. She writes novels, essays, nonfiction books, news articles. She's a, she's a Christian, and I'll admit she pushes the limits in many ways on Christianity. I find myself cringing sometimes at some of the things that she says. But I love how she describes her own conversion and Jesus' pursuit of her, his search and rescue mission after her. He, she says he was like an alley cat that shows up at your doorstep and just won't go away. You let him in on a cold night, you feed him once in a while, and all of a sudden, before you know it, he's sleeping at the foot of your bed and standing on your chest every morning trying to wake you up. Let me tell you a little more of her story as she tells it. Her life is a testimony, I think, to this whole seek and save the lost, Jesus' pursuit of those who are needing rescue. Back in 1984, Anne says she discovered she was pregnant by a, a man she did not love. She had no interest in starting a family. A friend took her to have an abortion. And she said the grief and the sadness that she felt in the days following that were almost unbearable. She took the pain pills the doctor gave her. She downed them with alcohol. And night after night, she tried to drown her sorrow or at least anesthetize the pain. She said on the seventh night, she noticed that she was bleeding profusely. Hours later, the bleeding had stopped. She crawled into bed. She said, I was scared. I was alone disgusted with myself and she lay in the dark quiet and still and she says I felt a presence in the room as strong and as real as anything I've ever felt before she turned on the light no one was there she lay in the dark she was convinced that Jesus was there in the room with her Anne said that she had been attending a black church in the ghetto off and on mostly she went for the music she left before the sermon she'd heard about Jesus she had no interest in getting to know Jesus 
And yet that night, she said she was convinced that he was there to seek her out. And she later wrote, I was appalled. I thought about my life. I thought about all my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. And it seemed utterly impossible that I would allow that to happen. That night, I turned to the wall and I said out loud, I would rather die. But she said, Jesus would not let me go. The next Sunday, she went back to the church. She sat during the music. She said, I was too hungover to stand up. By the time the sermon started, she didn't even have the energy to get up and leave. The preacher's words felt ridiculous to her at first, but the closing song was, was so deep and raw It was so powerful, she couldn't escape it. She said, I felt like a scared child who's being clutched by somebody in their arms. She ducked out of the service before it was over, weeping and crying. She said, I tried to run, but it's hard to run with a hangover. And so she, she managed to get home. She said, that alley cat was padding along behind me the whole time. She said, I finally got to the door of my house. And before I went inside, I hung my head And I said, okay, you can come in. And she said, for her, that was the the beginning of conversion. That was that moment when she finally said, okay, I give up. And Jesus' rescue of her began. Her beautiful moment of conversion, and her life was never the same. And you know, Anne's story reminds me a little bit about the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. I want to read to you a paraphrase of of just a few verses there. It's from the message paraphrase of the Bible. This is what Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3. I'll never forget the trouble. I'll never forget the utter lostness, the taste of ashes, the poison I have swallowed. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting the bottom. But there's one other thing I remember, and remembering I keep a grip on hope. God's loyal love could not run out. His merciful love could not dry up. I am sticking with God. I say it over and over. He is all that I've got left. I want you to listen to me. The world is a chaotic place. And until you die or Jesus comes back, Jesus is not going to remove the chaos from the world. Jesus is not going to remove the chaos from your life. Jesus will not remove you from the chaos and build a little hedge of protection around you and keep anything bad from happening to you. We're in the world. There's trouble in the world. But what Jesus promises he'll do is that he will go into the chaos with you, that he will enter in with you, with me. It's what search and rescue is all about. It's hard to do search and rescue from a distance. His pursuit of every man, woman, and child on earth, he wades right into the middle of the mess. He walks through it with us. He comes face to face with us. We never face it alone. Jesus will never stop seeking. He will never stop pursuing. He's that alley cat that's going to stay at your heels till you kick him away or you decide to let him in. Like those divers in the cave, man, they had to go in. Every day, day after day, first searching and then going back to those boys, trying to bring them resources, trying to bring them hope, trying to get them out. They were right in the middle of it, in the danger themselves, because that's the only way you can do it. 
Jesus enters the chaos with us. That's the bottom line today. He enters the chaos. He risks everything to be with us, to rescue us, and to bring us home. You know, at Christmas time, one of the words that we hear more often now than any other time of year is the word Emmanuel. We hear it in songs, Christmas carols. We see it in Scripture. The word Emmanuel means God with us. It was used first, to my knowledge, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is 700 years before Christ. The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And friends, Jesus is Emmanuel. He forever will be God with us. He does not remove the chaos. He does not protect us from the chaos. What he does is that he enters the chaos with us. That was God's game plan from the very beginning. It's why he told Zechariah in Luke 1 that Jesus was coming, that John was coming, because the world was going to be forever changed. It's why Christmas matters. Search and rescue. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus right here in the mess. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and that his rescue is still available today. God, there's so many in our community, in our country, and around the world who don't know you. Some have heard about you and stubbornly refuse your, your, your offer. Others have not yet heard the offer. But God, we believe that you long to draw each of us to you and that you have sent Jesus, that Jesus still comes through the power of your spirit, Lord. You are still at work in this world rescuing. I pray that we can be your tools of searching and rescuing as well. That we can share your light and your truth. God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming for us. We surrender again before you today affirming that you are our only hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.